Well, it's an honor tonight to come and study the book of 1 John and thrilled to pick up our study and it's been just a great weekend to be ministered to and to hear the word preached. Thank you, Brian, for ministering to us. And Now we just take a few moments and look at John's letter to us. Such a, an encouragement, this text. As we look at this text, what we have seen thus far is this in chapter 1. We saw the message of our fellowship in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The message has come to us. The message has been heard that we have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw the members in fellowship, that is God himself, and the apostles who proclaim the message, and by implication, all those who have embraced that message are in fellowship with God. And then last time we were together, we looked at the terms of fellowship, those who are in this membership. And the terms are those who walk in the light, those who confess their sin, and those who acknowledge their sinful condition. We enter into fellowship with God. As we acknowledge our fallen condition, we confess sin, and we then walk in holiness. As we have embraced the living God, we walk in newness of life. These are those who are in fellowship with God. And again, this isn't, you're not brought into fellowship because of your obedience. It's those who are in fellowship with God walk in newness of life. Now what I want to focus on before we transition into chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is just the end in verses 8 and 10. Just to draw out a distinction there of what John is stating. In verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John in verse 8 talks about the present tense of sin. If we say we are not presently sinning, we have no sin at all. We've never, we're not in sin. We lie. And in verse 10, he speaks of a past tense, a, a perfect, something that has been happened in the past with results till today. If we say we have never sinned, we again make God a liar. His word is not in us. What John begins to draw attention to is the fullness of man's condition. He is both his sinful nature and his being, and then his present activity of rebelling against God. And then it drew my attention to the struggle of the self-righteous heart. The struggle of the self-righteous heart is, I have no sin. I don't sin. I might have made a mistake. I might have, made an ac- might have had an accident. Uh, uh, I might have been misled. I might have been mistreated and then responded in a harsh way, but it wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault. They came upon me. The self-righteous person is re- deflecting from any personal responsibility of sin. This is a temptation. Someone made me do it. It's someone else's fault. It's not my own fault. Or on the other end, the self-righteous person says, okay, well, yeah, I might have sinned, but I'll undo this. I'll fix it. I'll do something good to weigh out so that my good outweighs my bad. You know, kind of like the guy who yelled at his wife and then went and bought her flowers and chocolates and said, here you go, dear, to make sure that he undid his transgression by uh, buying her gifts, to even out the scales. 
This is self-righteousness either way. The idea that I can pay back any transgression or the idea is it never really was sin, it was something else. In both cases, John says, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We make him a liar. So that the most sides of self-righteousness John confronts here. The active side that says, I can fix it, or the passive side which says it really wasn't actually uh, sin. It was something else. John confronts both and reminds us in verse 9, if we confess, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fellowship with God comes through confession, acknowledging our sinful condition. It comes as we take ownership for our transgressions. We take ownership for the, for the rebellion in our hearts and lives. We acknowledge what God says about us. And again, that's what verse 9 is stating. Confess, homilegeo. We say the same thing about ourselves that God says of us. God says we have fallen short. We acknowledge our condition. We're in rebellion presently. We acknowledge the present transgression. We are not making excuses for those sins. We're not trying to uh, make ourselves better than what we are. We're not trying to, to distance ourselves from our condition as if it was not our problem. No, we acknowledge the fullness of, of what God says about the human condition. We have fallen short. So we can say it like this coming into this text. No one can enter into fellowship with God who walks in self-righteousness who says, I have no real problem, it's everyone else's fault, I'm just learning how to deal with everyone else's problems. No, you come into fellowship with God with the acknowledgement, I have fallen short. It is in my nature, and that even nature comes to everyday battles and everyday struggles, so that in the everyday struggles I am in much of need of God and forgiveness, and so I confess and I acknowledge. And that sets us up into chapter 2. Because if we understand our fallen condition, we understand that to have fellowship with God is to walk in the light, to walk in holiness and righteousness, to be perfect as he is perfect, using the language of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. To speak and to operate in such a way that demonstrates God's work within us, one of the most significant struggles we're going to have is the battle with present sin in our life. When we come in this chapter, and John turns our attention to the riches of God's kindness and grace. We should, in one sense, as we end chapter 1, and you end this high note of exacting righteousness that God demands and the need for confession, there should be a bit of uneasiness in your heart. And that's where chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 picks up. Notice what John says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Tone changes into chapter 2. In chapter 1, it is the glorious message of the 
of the Lagos, the word of life. Chapter 1 is this glorious message of fellowship with God and how we can dwell in fellowship with God. Even though God is perfect, He's without fault, there's no darkness in Him at all, and we who have been in the darkness can have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. John here turns and he takes, this, takes our focus in chapter 2, and now he becomes fatherly in his message to us. If in chapter 1 he is a herald, if he is a proclaimer of the gospel, if he is, as again verse 3 indicates, he is proclaiming to us the riches of the message, chapter 2 he is comforting us and encouraging us. And it comes at just the right time, especially after coming after verses 8 and verse 10 there, talking about if we say we have no sin. And he's drawing our attention to the presence of sin in our life. And again, the very thing the self-righteous person doesn't want to look at, John is shoving our nose right into. This is your condition. You say you have not sinned. You make God a liar. If you say you're not presently sinning, you also are deceiving yourself. We ought to be confessing. Now the struggle is, all right, John, you've made me very aware of my sin How is it that as you've made my sin aware and you've drawn my attention to it and you've said we need to walk in the light and not in the darkness, how is it even possible? And then comes the comforting words of verse 1 to us. We find in this, again, that natural temptation. When sin springs up, The natural temptation is wanting to distance ourselves from it as if it was someone else's fault. Something else within us, ignore it and wish it goes away. But John takes our perspective and, and directs us how we ought to be thinking about this sin when it's been brought out within us. And he does it again, as I said, not in the forceful way that he has done it in the first chapter, not in the direct speech, but now... He is coming in comforting words to us to minister to us. Again, this is so unique. I'm thinking about John himself, the direct speaker, the one who is going to make definitive statements, even when you get into chapter 3, speaking about the believer does not sin, no one born of God sins. He's going to make these direct statements that challenge our hearts, Before he gets to these direct statements, he sets the tone for us here. And he gives us not the heavy hand, not the putting us under under the thumb and driving us home, but here he now speaks in a loving, fatherly way. And I love this particular pattern. And it is important for us to observe these particular details when we come up to it because we have the tendency when we're wanting to confront something or challenge something or exhort to always be in exhortation mode, always to be in heaviness and directness. And here's you know, the clarity which John does. Yes, I'm going to speak the truth and draw your attention to it so that you understand your condition but I'm also going to come alongside and comfort and encourage. Notice this, the phrase, my little children. He is now talking to an audience that he is acknowledging as believers. The term technia, 
my little children. We're talking now to believers, those who have embraced the message that he has been proclaiming, the message of the word of life, those who have come to know God as being holy in the light, these who, again, who have desired to be obedient, to walk in newness of life, those who are uh, presumably confessing, acknowledging their needs, there he's focused on them. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. It's loving, it's tender, it's pastoral. As John is writing this, he is again drawing their attention to uh, his own instruction as a father to a child, come, listen to me, listen to my words carefully, come out of or snap out of your childish way of thinking and listen carefully to what I'm saying to you here. And just before we jump in and kind of unpack this, let me give you just one more little kind of uh, disclaimer before we jump into this section. Because we're about to jump into, particularly verse 2, that whole phrase, which everyone's wondering what in the world is going to say when it comes to how is he the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the whole world. What does it mean that Christ is the propitiation for the whole world? Are we saying that he actually died for everyone and he's covered every sin and now it's up to man to choose upon Christ because he's covered it all? We're going to get into some heavy theological waters when we get into verse 2. And I'm punting that for next week. I'm just telling you right now. It's going to happen next week, not this week. But the point in it is that as we move into these theological waters, one of the things that we have to be careful of as we're heading into this text is to let the text itself speak. Not forcing the ideas or the agendas that we want into that text, but explain what that text intends to explain. The idea is this, as we, we've talked before in our years of ministry, is that we come to particular passages like this. And these are, this is a, one of those passages that lots of preachers love to run to, to immediately launch off of and begin to explain their, their favored theological ideas. For us, it's important to do this. So we're going to let the text speak and then let it shape our theology. So I've said over the years in our ministry here, Our theology is a servant to the text, not a master to it. It does not tell the text what the text must mean. The text shapes our theology. More importantly, as we are wrestling through this particular text, and as we draw out the meaning of this text, we then compare those meanings against other texts, and we develop our theology from that. But we don't come with a preconceived idea to force it into this particular text to shape a meaning. And this will be one of those classic texts, so if there's ever a time where we'll be tempted to bring in all of this great reformed soteriology into the text, this is it. Even my dear mentors and others have been tempted along this lines, and it will be fun to interact with them as we go through this. But now just notice what John does here. Starting again in verse 1, my little children, that phrase, technia, 
my little children, translated little children. In fact, seven times, if you just read through the English text, seven times the phrase little children is used. Six of them are with this word technia here that starts in 2 verse 1, my little children. Jump down to verse 12, you see it again in verse 12. I am writing to you little children, notice, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I want to establish right here, when John is talking about little children, he is talking about believers. It's important to establish this because some have argued, well, no, he's just kind of generally talking about an audience who are reading this, who are making a decision which way they're going to land. Well, clearly, notice verse 12, I am writing to you little children, Now this phrase, because your sins have been forgiven you. Are you saying that there are unbelievers out there whose sins have been forgiven them? Come down to verse 28. He continues on. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. This is one of those examples where someone would take the phrase little children and say this just refers to a general audience. It isn't referring to actual believers. Jump down to chapter 3 and verse 7. This word actually is a different word. Little children, this is padia, make sure no one deceives you. And this idea, little children, is referring to more of an infant, a, a child, different from the technia, a beloved child, a, a, a little one. Verse 18 of chapter 3, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 4, again, Technia is used. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Again, if we're identifying who this technia is, this group called the little children, we recognize they are believers. They are those who have their sins forgiven. They are those who have God in them. They are those who overcome the world because God is in them. And one more time, chapter 5 and verse 21, John uses this word. Five little children, guard yourselves from idols. The final exhortation that John gives It's obvious from this phrase, and we turn back to chapter 2, verse 1. It's obvious from this phrase then, John is turning his attention to those who have embraced the message that he is proclaiming and have believed upon the word of life. They're believers. They have fellowship with God. They've confessed their sin. They are saved. They have God living within them. They are ones who are overcoming the world as they walk in newness of life. They are those who are going to, chapter 4, embrace the apostles' teaching. They are those who are going to be walking in love. They are those who are putting away idols so they don't walk in idolatry. All of this John lays out here. And he says here then in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. Here's my purpose, John says. Little children... Believers, don't practice sin. Don't walk in it. Don't walk in, in sin. Walk in newness of life. 
say it differently, John is basically restating what he said in chapter 1. I'm writing to you that you be holy. Be holy as God is holy. I mean, this is a common New Testament theme. The holiness of God's people. Live in newness of life. Live in righteousness. We see this theme everywhere throughout the New Testament. We saw it in Romans chapter 6, particularly the whole chapter. But thinking about verses 12 through 14 when Paul says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We live in newness of life. We live for the glory of God. As Peter says, and uh, you just turn back uh, to First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter gives the same exhortation, First Peter 2 and verse 24. It says, He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. We were saved, redeemed for the very purpose. He laid down his life on the cross. He bore our sins on the cross so that the purpose statement that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is a common New Testament theme of the work of Christ. Turning back to then 1 John 2 verse 1. This is John's exhortation. Right out of the gate, after talking about the embracing of the message... Right out of the gate, he reminds this audience of their pursuit of holiness. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. That's your mindset. Your mindset is to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness, to be pure as God is pure, to pursue what is holy, right, and good. The Bible is very clear on this particular message. But this is then where we all struggle. All right, I know the message. I know the calling. I know the members in this fellowship are holy and righteous, starting with God and the Son, Jesus Christ, and those who walk after. But I fall short. That's the way John continues. And if anyone sins, we fall short. We We struggle. We struggle in believing in the moment, even as we listen to the message this morning. Fears creep up. Unbelief creeps in. Lies flood our minds. Differing circumstances come upon us that test our faith in the moment, and we waffle and waver. Tempted to give in to unrighteousness, tempted to take matters into our own hands, like again, like David this morning, I can reason my way out of this. Or in the idea here in this context, the self-righteous person, I can fix it. Yeah, I've done wrong, but I'll do something to get back on track. I, I can dig myself out of this hole. John, drawing our attention, I want to speak to you, he's saying, to anyone who sins. 
If any one of us sins, this is the one I want to give encouragement to, the one who, who understands the sin in their life. Meaning, we live in a day and age where everyone is trying to ignore sin altogether, to call it something else. Ah, it's just their personality. It's not sin, it's just their makeup. It's how they were, their, their, their biological and psychological makeup. It's what they are. It's not sin, it's you know, just a mistake or anything else. We're living in a day and age where we're trying to distance ourselves from the language of sin, the language of transgression. We just want it to be an illness. We want it to be something else. Instead of running from that particular language, John takes us straight to acknowledge it and then perceive it properly. If anyone sins, if sin is revealed, how do we respond if sin is revealed. Again, I think in this statement, John is assuming here some things about his audience. He's assuming, first of all, they're striving for holiness. He's assuming that they can identify what holiness is, they, they know it, they can appreciate it, and they're striving for it. He's also, in this process, Believing that they are faithfully pressing in to be with their Lord and Savior, faithfully striving. They're being washed and sanctified. They're being transformed. They're even confessing sin, verse 9, if we confess our sins. But think about this for a moment. You have been in the Lord for any amount of time. You've believed the gospel. You have come to recognize that Christ indeed laid down his life on your behalf. You believe that your transgressions were taken, they were placed to his account, so that he took that sin, that penalty, he bore our penalty on the cross. And you, do, you remember that day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year after year, start to add up the years, you're like, this has been 5, 10, 20, 40, 50 years. 50 years of living the Christian life day in and day out. 50 years where I could look back and I could see failures and falling short. 50 years where I could say, I strove to walk up that mountain, to be holy, to be in the light, to walk in fellowship, only to find those times where I've fallen short. Only to see sin come back. Only to see the times that my good efforts and my striving lost endurance to fall down again, to lose momentum, to give back into that particular sin. And I'm right back into chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 again. I see sin. See it presently, and I see it historically. And there might be in that moment of temptation there to struggle with the presence, the present presence of sin in our life. And the question is, how do we view that? What should I think of in that moment when sin comes up again after years of striving in the Christian life? Does this mean that I was just never a believer? 
because it just keeps coming back? Well, John gives us the perspective. If anyone sins, and he puts it in a conditional statement. And I love the fact that he puts it in a conditional statement because what he's ultimately saying is, this is foreign to us, but if it happens, here's our perspective. We're not making excuses for sins as if it's normal for us, as if it's gonna, we're just going to make it a pattern of our life. But if it should happen, here's the proper thinking you are to have. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice where he turns our attention. He doesn't turn our attention back to our own works. Well, remember your good works in your past life, all the things you did. Remember your, your profession. Remember that time where you walked the aisle. Remember that time you, you gave good sacrifice. He doesn't turn your attention to self-works, nor does he turn the attention to ignore it all. It doesn't matter. He turns the attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the person, the advocate, who is the righteous one. His works, verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. John turns our attention in those moments back to the fundamental truths of the gospel. How do we deal with ongoing present sin in our life, even that comes after we have believed? We turn by going back and preaching to ourselves the gospel again. We turn and remind ourselves of what put us in this position of being redeemed in the first place was faith in the word of life, faith in Christ. We repent. We believe. He draws our attention to this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. This is the thrust that John is going to drive us to, this answer, which we may begin to question and doubt, especially when you think of your own Christian life after many years going back to maybe some of these same cycles where sin gets exposed and you think, what am I just going to learn? What am I going to be uh, strong enough? What am I going to overcome and then all of this go away? And is this sacrifice really sufficient? And John gives us here the hope by turning our attention to the advocate. If you sin, if anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are not left to ourselves, not left to our own devices to try to dig ourselves out of this trouble, not left to a place that we're trying to to earn favor with God, to undo our transgression as if Christ covered up to a certain point and we just got to complete that last little step. No, it is he has entirely remedied this situation for us. It's not our good works. It's not earning favor with God by trying to go back and get it right the next time. No, it is fixing our eyes on the perfection of Christ and His work. Again, up to this point in the book, John has focused on us. 
up to this point, from chapter 1, verse 1, through up to chapter 2, verse 1, the focus has been on us, what we do. If we say, if we confess, he's talked about our conduct, our obedience. He's talked about the confession of our sins. Verses 1 through 4, he has talked about, again, the message and our believing upon the message. Verse 7, he's talked about Christ and shedding of his blood. In fact, so John focused about us, our repentance, then turns and focuses on Christ. Christ is the message. In verse 1, he is the word of life. Verse 7 of chapter 1, it is his blood, the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. Verse 9, it is Christ who is the one who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Here, John now turns the attention for us and to focus our attention on Christ, the Advocate, the Righteous One. And he's described here not as judge, not as one who is going to come down hard upon our transgression. He's described here not as the warrior nor is the returning, conquering hero that Revelation describes of him. He doesn't describe him here as the one who is coming on his great white horse seeking to conquer his enemies. John here describes Jesus Christ as an advocate, a helper, a representative who is coming on our behalf. This term, advocate, paraclete, is a unique term to the Apostle John. He uses it regularly. He uses it back in his, in his uh, gospel, speaking of the Holy Spirit as, his, as the helper. But when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, John fifteen twenty six. when the helper comes, John sixteen seven. if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. I'll, each time that word translated, Helper is paraclete, advocate. The one who is coming is going to come as a helper, one who is going to, to, to advocate for us. In fact, he is, John says in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, another advocate, helper. The Holy Spirit is another helper, implying, of course, Christ as the helper as well. Helper, word paraclete. The idea of this here in chapter 2, verse 1, this idea of this word is the one who is summoned to come alongside of. So, as John is building the case, if anyone sins, we have one who comes alongside of us. One, but in this particular case, the one who comes aside of us, alongside of us is with the Father. It's in the Father's presence. Basically, when we transgress as believers, we have somebody standing in the presence of the Father able to intercede on our behalf. We're not going down to some outside party trying to get that party 
informed that they can then go find God and give God our case, we have one who is in the presence of the Father to give our account, to give our case. And the, again, the very question would be then, what would make him suitable to be able to do this work? Why would he be fit for this particular role? And John lays it out here. In fact, John gives us three reasons why Jesus Christ is the perfect advocate on our behalf. And we'll look at that next week. I just want to set up again why it is this is significant for us. The point is this. If we sin... We have someone, namely Jesus, standing in the presence of God, the Father, who is working on our behalf. That is a radically different perspective when we're facing sin as believers. Different from the self-righteous person who's saying, I need to fix this myself, I'll go work on it. Or I'm just going to ignore it and hope it doesn't exist at all. The believer focused this, their attention on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith, or focused their attention on the present ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ before the Father. We have an advocate. So that believer, as you're striving to walk in fellowship, as you are striving to confess sin, that whenever it is revealed, as you are practicing 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. When you are regularly practicing confession and repentance and you're regularly coming back to the seemingly the same spot all the time and you're wondering in your mind, am I going to exhaust the mercies of God? Chapter 2 verse 1. No. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John MacArthur, speaking of this particular verse, says this, In keeping with the imagery, God appears as the supreme judge of the universe, seated at the heavenly bench and judging all people according to the absolute perfection of his holy law. He is the author, the interpreter, and applier of the law. But believers must view the reality of divine justice with great sobriety and respect. Since God possesses the power and authority to condemn to hell every sinner who ever lived, Jesus gave this sober admonition. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The Old Testament prophets also gave clear warning about that kind of divine judgment. Those who are saved, however, need not fear divine justice because they have an advocate with the Father, none other than Jesus Christ the righteous. Here, advocate denotes in legal settings the defender or counselor who comes to the aid of his client. Christ is the perfect advocate since the judge is the Father and they are always in perfect harmony. 
Further, the Son completely understands the saints' weaknesses because He came to earth as the fully human Son of Man. He accepts as His client only those who confess their guilt and their desperate need to receive Him as Savior and Lord, and He becomes for them the incomparable intercessor who always gains acquittal for those who trust in Him. In Old Testament language, He is their great high. A great summary of the picture. Again, to describe this, I mean, the indispensable role of a lawyer who is going before the judge. That's the imagery that John takes us here when he uses this term, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a divine defense attorney. But this divine defense attorney has a unique relationship to the judge. It's his father, our father. He he has a familial relationship. But even more than a familial relationship, the verse goes on, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the perfect one. Perfect, holy, righteous able to stand before the Father in perfection. It's this perfect one. That's Lewis Johnson. Kind of adds on it. says like this. It says, Advocacy is one of the special activities of the priest. It has to do with his ministry with reference to sinning believers. If any man sin, we have an advocate. This is a civil law term. Back today, unfortunately, you cannot say without a sort of a negative connotation, the term advocate means something like lawyer. Now, the important thing about this term is advocate is this. The advocate in ancient times was often and generally, in many cases, no hired person. In other words, you didn't go out and hire a lawyer. And he goes on to explain that this person as an advocate would have been a representative of a family. A family would have this attorney, part of the clan. The, the advocate would have been one who was in relationship to his members. So he was going out as a representative of the members of his particular clan, he builds. So that S. Lewis Johnson finishes with this statement. He is one of us, speaking of Christ. He came, he took to himself human nature, becoming one of us, and he represents us. So speaking of advocate, he is not just the divine representative, the divine defense attorney attorney who is before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the man, and he is righteous. Again, piecing that all together for us as we are standing at this particular state and we ever are tempted to think as sin is ever before us, ever coming up in our battle, and we're losing heart and resisting evil and wondering, do I keep on pressing into this? Do I keep on resisting? Do I keep on striving to walk in the light when I keep falling short? Am I going to exhaust the mercies of the living God Well, just fix your eyes on the advocate, the one who stands before the Father, who is 
God very God and man very man, able to stand before the Father advocating on your behalf, and he is righteous. How can you exhaust the righteousness of God? As I said, all that sets up the proposition statement, which is this. Son of God, here, we learn in this text three reasons why Christ is able to be the perfect advocate on our behalf. Reason? Because he is righteous, because he is the perfect sacrifice, and because he is the sufficient sacrifice. And next week, we'll explain all that. What does that mean? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be the perfect sacrifice? What does it mean to be the sufficient sacrifice? What I wanted you to leave with tonight is this. You come to Saving Grace Bible Church, and we don't hold back. We take the scriptures to you. We show you what God says. We've worked through Romans 6. We've worked through difficult passages together. We've seen our sins brought to the surface. And the temptation when sins are brought to the surface and we're feeling low, it's either to run to self-works, I will try to fix this, I'll try to get right, or to turn to the gospel of grace. To turn to Christ, again, and acknowledging our love and devotion to Him, our belief and faith upon Him. We strive now because that's who we are in Christ. We don't strive because we're trying to undo a wrong. We strive because we are in fellowship with God. We strive because we are children of God. And taking the the language of chapter 2 and verse 1, the phrase, my little children, we're reminding and comforting our hearts. We are children of God. He's covered us. I love even just thinking about this morning, David's own life. Brian and I were talking afterwards, and we're talking about David running in rebellion, and God even taking David and stopping him short. Verse or chapter twenty-eight, stopping him from being able to fully, you know, as Brian said, let him up right to the cliff's edge, looking over that edge. God stopped him short. So then the next chapters come and didn't come without a cost to David. But the Lord was faithful, preserving and protecting his people. And David repents and turns and believes. What I love about the tone here of 1 John 2, 1 is the tone of the Apostle John as a loving father speaking to us, reminding us of our perspective. And when we are at our lowest point, when our sins are before us and the sin that had lied to us when we were self-deceived, believing the lies and trusting in our own works, and then finally our eyes are opened and we're seeing ourselves plainly and seeing the decisions we made and we're seeing even the consequences of our decisions and at those moments we are tempted to despair of all things. So we come right back to this truth. Turn your eyes off of yourselves and fix them on the living God. Fix them on the advocate who is before the Father. Remind yourselves of what he has accomplished on your behalf. Believe upon him. Don't believe upon yourself and your abilities in those moments. 
Do you, do you sin? Do you miss the mark? Have you fallen short? Have you weaseled out of obedience in some way? Have you sought to justify a transgression? Well, confess. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive. And fix your eyes and hope on this blessed advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is presently interceding on your behalf, who will intercede on your behalf, who cannot be exhausted in his work because he is the righteous one. And he satisfied all of God's righteous demands. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this marvelous work and thank you for the comfort it brings to us. For we just want to strive more because of the generous love that you have poured out upon us. We just want to rejoice all the more. We strive to give you our whole lives because of our Lord who has modeled laying down his life on our behalf. We rejoice in this trials because we know the dead man is unaware of his own sin, unaware of his fallen condition. But the child of God is, is painfully aware of each transgression, painfully aware of each attitude and that is worldly and idolatrous, and we're grieved of the, over those things. May we always be grieved. May we never, ever feel at home in sin. May we always be uncomfortable in it. May always be distressed by it, grieved by it. But may our heart quickly turn, not to ourselves and our circumstances, but turn to our Lord and fix our eyes upon Him. And may we minister to one another with both the firmness and clarity and conviction that John demonstrated in chapter 1, but also the compassion and grace that he demonstrates in chapter 2. So as we strengthen one another to persevere, we strengthen one another to practice the gospel, to preach it to themselves, to remind ourselves of these truths so that we're not tempted to to walk in our own efforts and our own self-righteousness. Instead, we walk in yielded faith, trusting ourselves to your marvelous work. Thank you for this comforting message, this encouraging message. And may we remind one another of the riches of your gospel each and every day. In your name we pray, amen.